0: But Titus chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. Father, open to our eyes the meaning of of this passage of Scripture. We know it is not throwaway text. It's not simply a greeting that has little meaning and is simply an on-ramp to a further discussion, but is itself the encapsulation of the message of this book and so vital and important to us. Please aid us as we strive to grasp the understanding of who we are in Christ, of this common faith that we share with those who have gone before and with those who we trust will go forward with us. I pray for those who know not Christ as Savior among us and ask God that this would not be a, a source of stumbling to them, but that the message here would be a source of hope. I ask that by your Holy Spirit you would open their eyes to see what they cannot see, and that together we would be laboring unto salvation. We plead for the ministry of the Spirit of God in our hearts now. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Stable institutions have the ability to look backwards. Functional, profitable, stable nations... Corporations, school systems, churches, families. They all benefit from the capacity to look backwards in a healthy way. Now, as we think of evolutionary philosophy, it undermines this capacity. It teaches us to look forward, to get on the right side of history as we evolve in our enlightenment, Evolutionary theory does not help us, of course, look up to God because it sees God is irrelevant. But it also does not help us look backward very well. Not with any healthy regard for heritage. In this respect, our society is nearly the opposite of the Greek societies. Greek philosopher Plato encapsulated ancient traditionalism when he said, and I underline traditionalism and hear it, when he said this, The ancients are better than we, for they dwell nearer to the gods. The ancients are better than we are, because they live nearer to the gods. So the Greeks believed that life emanated downward in increasingly corrupt forms from the ideal realm. What that means is that the closer you got to earth, the more corrupt everything became. And the more time that passed, the more distant one was from the ancients and from the realm of the gods. So the tradition worshiping Greeks struggled to look to the future with any real hope. Everything was devolving along the way. And when they looked up, they saw what? They saw only the fantasy land of their own imaginations and the multiplicity of gods that were there. The sad result was that they could not see backward with a right sense. And the sad result in our day with evolutionary thinking is that we cannot see forward. Or we cannot see backward. We cannot look backward with any real hope. Well, as followers of Jesus Christ, we know the wonder and the profit of looking up. Before we know there that we find in Christ our salvation. But we also have the ability to look backwards in healthy, soul-stabilizing ways. Indeed, looking to God roots our souls in an ancient tradition and plants our feet on the solid foundation of salvation history. So while the Greeks were in trouble of saying we are always inferior to those who come before, and where evolutionary thinking is always saying we are superior to those who went before, the Christian faith plants our feet solidly, in the capacity to look forward and to look backward as we look up to God. So the introduction of Paul's letter to his disciple and fellow evangelist Titus displays this solid foundation on which our lives as Christ's followers are firmly planted. It helps us look back and to find the common faith on which our salvation stands. At first, let's take a brief a uh, moment here for a word of introduction on the book itself as we plan by God's grace to work our way through it. We know nothing of the mission here of Paul on the island of Crete or how Titus ended up being here, but we do find from the book that he was left there by the apostle. Titus was a highly trusted, faithful minister of the gospel who saw lots of action during Paul's missionary journeys. At times he served alongside the renowned apostles. Sometimes he was sent on a mission somewhere else by himself. Many times he would stay behind and would stabilize and build up the Christian churches that were left after Paul had gone to another place. And that's where we find him here, the situation of this letter with Paul writing to him to instruct him as he meets with churches on this island of Crete. Uh, you'll notice here, I'll, I'll give it a little circle in red here if you're still not seeing that, but they're down at the bottom of, our, uh, of this slide, on that island is where Titus is stationed and his task is to stabilize churches there. So this book is helpful to him in that, but let's also remember that this isn't meant for him to read in some closet somewhere with a candle and he leaves the book to himself and somebody just discovered it. It's a book that was written to Titus to be read publicly and heard by the church. So we do the same thing in some sense here today as we hear this letter and are stabilized and strengthened by it in our faith. We find in this brief letter a strong emphasis on the organic relationship between true faith in Christ and godly living, and that fits the context very well because Crete was a very depraved place. It was a godless land, and in the, as, as Christians were reading this text and as Titus is working with them in the new faith, they have to be prepared to be very different from those around them. And a godliness of life is a key theme that we find here, the connection of true faith to godly living. In fact, we'll see that here in this introduction. The book also provides us with two exalted Christological sections in chapter 2 at the end and toward the beginning of chapter 3, and we look forward to to saturating ourselves in the worship of those texts and days to come. But in the first four verses of Paul's introduction to this letter, we find a beautiful summation of the apostolic faith passed on in God's word of revelation to his people. Here we are today in the very same place. Times have so widely changed, so dramatically changed, but here we are in the same place. We find here in these simple words, these few words, the very foundation on which Eden Baptist Church stands or fails. It's all right here for us. Our rootedness in the preaching of God's authoritative word, which he entrusted to the apostles for our sanctification, passed on to others that continues to be the foundation under our feet. And how we thank God for that in a world that has become so rootless and disconnected. Because in an evolutionary society, everybody thinks we've come to the greatest pinnacle of human existence. All who have gone before are, are inferior to us. But we as Christians look back and say, no, we're part of the work of the risen Christ. As he is working with his people through the ages, we rejoice to stand with that community. and Our feet are on a solid foundation then. In fact, I think we are in this book and even in this introductory section testing our life as a church. Are we alive? Are we who Christ wants us to be? Here it is. Before we get into those specifics, we look first of all here in verse 1 just at the author of the book, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of God, this designation expresses humility. Paul is on mission to exalt Christ, not to exalt himself, it certainly indicates that. But when we study this use of the word servant as we find it in the Old Testament, it is commonly used to people who have a lot of work to do for God. So it's not simply the humility of the position, he's a servant of God, but it's also the fact that there's much to do. And so Paul manages Christ's business, he executes his purposes, he speaks as his representative. The risen Christ is winning a people for the glory of his name here on the island of Crete. And as Paul writes, he's saying, I labor for them. I labor for their salvation. I want you to labor for their salvation. And So he says, I'm a servant. I am also an apostle. What's an apostle? An official, representative, and spokesperson for the risen Christ. So Paul proclaims the gospel of Christ crucified and risen, the gospel that he learned from Jesus that he received from Christ in his instructions in how to understand revelation. And he labors for Jesus to secure three features of salvation in the lives of the redeemed. So as we're thinking, risen Christ, chosen apostle, passing on the faith, here's what it is. Here's where we stand on solid ground. He begins by emphasizing First, his apostolic office, but then articulating three fundamental accomplishments of the gospel in the lives of believers. What does the gospel do? How does it change us? Where does it set us? A life that we share with Christ's followers through the centuries. That begins, first of all, what are the realities of this life? And are they evident in your life is a question we should ask. The first is very simply faith in God. You see it there in verse 1. Paul introduces himself or just identifies himself here to Titus and then says, I'm an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. I am an apostle for this reason. Working for the faith of God's people. What binds Christians together through the centuries, and do we recognize this? This is a foundation we come in here today, standing on, together. Do we recognize this? But what binds Christians together through the centuries, what binds us to Christ, is our life of faith in God. As simple as that is, the lost person living around us in this day believe in themselves, or don't. They put their faith in someone else, some false guru or some friend or some book or some idea that they just come up with on their own. But we are bound together by our faith in God. That means this, we believe his word and we obey it. We trust him for wisdom and direction. We're praying and asking God to give us his wisdom. We depend upon him for help and protection, for healing and strength. We go to God, the God who we know is there, who hears our cry and we put our trust in him. The life of a genuine believer is a life that does not operate only on the, uh, the senses and what they can prove. It operates in full confidence upon God's counsel and it trusts God's promises. There's our feet, solid ground. We believe what God has said. We trust His Word. We trust His person as He loves us and lives for us to redeem and strengthen us. Now, notice here, of course, that phrase, uh, God's elect, uh, for the faith of God's elect. The elect are those that God chooses for salvation. Now it is certainly true that we choose Christ as Savior. We must repent of our sins. We must receive Him as Lord and Savior with a conscious act of the will. But the Bible repeatedly emphasizes the glorious truth that the only reason any of us chooses Christ is because God has chosen to adopt us. It's far deeper than meets the eye at first. We look at Ephesians chapter 1, for instance, which says this so clearly. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. God chose us. God decided to bring us into a position of adoption through Christ. According to the purpose of his will according to the purpose of his will. So just a couple of points here. You notice here the plan devised before time. And also a plan that rested in God's will, not in what he saw our will would one day be. So the elect of God, as we consider what he says about his eternal plan and about his eternal purposes, often prove very troubling to us. And I think probably the most troubling is that person who says, I don't know if God has chosen me as his adopted child. I don't know if I am among the chosen of God. And I would just offer, if that's where you are or you're working with someone who's thinking that way, it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. It's not where the Bible directs us to think. Never does the Bible steer us to ask the question, has God chosen me in eternity past? That's rather what we come to understand after we have come to Christ as Savior. That there's much more to it. It goes far deeper than what meets the eye when we first trust Christ as Savior. But I would say it this way. It's this. He's not saying, try to discern if I've chosen you. It's more like Jesus takes your face in his hands and stares you right in the eye And what does he say? Trust me. Trust me. That's what he says to us. Not figure out my eternal plan with respect to you. That's way over your head. Trust me. I died to pay the penalty of sin. I rose, defeating death the punishment for sin, to give eternal life to those who trust me, trust me. That's it. And if you so respond in trusting faith in Christ crucified and risen, focusing your attention there, that's what he's calling me to do. Once you do that, you find that there's an eternity behind your salvation. It is not God saying, well, I didn't see that coming. That's really interesting. Or, yeah, I was impressed in eternity past that I could see ahead that you would choose me. It goes way deeper, way deeper. But if you struggle with that, has God chosen me? Just look Jesus in the eye and know that he's saying to you, just trust me. Trust me for saving grace. And so the Christian life in the church, the foundation we share, the solid foundation, is to come in among the assembly and say, in so many words, week after week, you too? He found you too? He found me and he found you. And that binds us together to God's people through the ages. It's amazing grace that we have come to place our trust, our faith in Christ as Savior. And so we say as an assembly, you too. Amazing grace. So this is what Paul says. This is what I'm laboring for, for Christ, for the faith of God's people. Secondly, for a knowledge of the truth. For their knowledge of the truth. You see that there, verse 1. I'm an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Secondly, and their knowledge of the truth. Their knowledge of the truth. What is truth? How would you define it? Truth is everything that corresponds with reality and the ultimate reality is God. So truth is personified in God. Truth is eternal. It is objective. It is external to us. It does not originate from somewhere inside of us, tapping into what I believe is truth for me. No. It's external. It's objective. It is eternal truth corresponding to the character, person of God. How do we get the truth? Here, as in all of the Scriptures, truth is revealed to us in the person of Christ and revealed to us in the Scriptures. It's not something we discover, but it's something that is given to us. We find Christ, we find His Word, and in that we have a knowledge of the truth. So, instruction in the Bible, aided by the Holy Spirit, supplies the knowledge of the truth. But beyond study, we also experience this knowledge. Notice it here in verse two, or verse three, verse one. (laughs) Get it right. (laughs) Couldn't possibly miss any more, could I? Uh, Verse 1, notice it there. God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So this isn't the kind of knowledge that just packs the head with facts, but it's a kind of knowledge that says, I want to know you, and then lives out that truth. It accords with godliness. So the truth fits a godly lifestyle. Never, ever, ever does Christ call us to merely learn truth. To merely understand it. He always insists that we live the truth. This is the aim of true doctrine. Ignorance of God's truth is tragic, but so is a knowledge of God's truth that never translates into life. That's not why he's revealed who he is. That's not why he's given us truth. To simply be students. Rather, we're to be disciples. A student can be happy with saying, I get it, I understand. And I've studied a number of philosophies, a number of teachings, a number of doctrines, a number of philosophies of history that I don't agree with. We can't look at Scripture like that. I've studied it. I've got it. I could pass the test. No, it's the truth that accords with godliness, that produces godliness, that points us toward a change of life. Knowledge... And godliness are like the coupling of marriage and love. Where you have marriage without love, something is sadly missing and off track, isn't it? So it is with doctrine and life. Where there is doctrine without godliness, something is horribly wrong. So Paul labors to see such godliness. And he exhorts Titus to labor for the same among the Cretan believers. And this then again is a, is a true test of whether our feet are on the solid foundation is whether or not the truth of God is changing us as a church. Is it changing you as an individual? Are you simply learning more and more facts but you're living further and further away from Christ? There's something desperately wrong there. A true knowledge of God's truth results in evidences of godliness. Courage to stand for the truth. Kind and loving deeds. Clean speech. Fighting lust. Giving, not holding a greedy spirit. Faithful and diligent in our engagements. Not lazy. Not selfish. Hating prejudice, injustice, and exploitation. A life of godliness is not a welcome exception to the norm a life of godliness for those who are feeding on the truth in the spirit is the norm that's what christ came to do to change us eternally but to begin changing us now is your knowledge of scripture changing you is it transforming your life it is helping you fight sin and grow in godliness some years ago, I've told this story before, but a woman trusted Christ as Savior within the context of the church, followed Jesus in baptism, and began to deal with her very vile background and wicked habits. And I counseled her after a pretty terrible fall back into the habits of sin. And as we were talking, I've never forgotten the phrase, she said, wow, wow does God ever take the fun out of sin? Now you could read that the wrong way, like she's begrudging, but that's not what she meant. What she meant was, what I used to find so much pleasure, I'm not finding it anymore. She was shuffling her feet in the right direction. Now where God would take her by His grace is to the place where the new affections would push out the old desires. She still had those old desires. She was still fighting with them, but she was realizing they no longer brought joy. God takes the fun out of sin. Or to say it another way, he shows us there was never any fun in it. And he gives us new desires and new affections to love him and serve him in godliness. Among the Lahu minority of the Yunnan province of China was a village overwhelmed by the social evils of opium and polytheistic and animistic religious practices. What did that mean? It meant that they gave all of their wealth on the altar by sacrificing animals and they were virtually starving. And it meant that they stayed as a, as, as a people in the stupor of opium. And the culture was about to fall apart and disintegrate when evangelists came to this village of the Lahu and preached in 1992. And within six years, much of the village was converted to Christ. And what do you think happened? How do we say they were converted to Christ? We know this because they changed. The whole culture changed. Animals were now eaten to people's profit as a gift from God. And opium was set aside for the love of Christ. And the culture of this village was changed. Now, what's strange about that story, wonderfully strange, is that a whole village, virtually nearly everyone in it, comes to Christ as Savior. That's unusual. It's not unusual that they changed. That's what the gospel does. That's what the new life is as we hear the truth, as we come to the knowledge of the truth, that there's one true and living God, and He alone is the satisfaction of your soul. Once you come to embrace that, it begins to change the way that you live. And that's what Paul is saying here in part. The knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. Notice the next phrase in verse 2, in hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life. Now, this could be seen as subordinate to godliness, but it doesn't work very well. And the Greek uh, indicates maybe particularly that we should look at this as a third idea. And that's how I want to take it here. I believe that's accurate with the text, though it may not hit us quite that way in the English. Uh, It looks like in the hope of eternal life kind of goes along with the truth that accords with godliness. But taking the structure that way, I think we have here a third idea area of focus for Paul's ministry and where we stand, and that is a hope of eternal life. Verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Hope in Scripture is always looking which direction? It's always looking forward, and it's not just I kind of hope it happens, but it's an absolute confidence of what will come because God has said it will come. As born-again believers in Christ, we do not live for the joys of this life. Actually, we pursue the joys of this life as an on-ramp to eternal life in Christ's presence. And so in that way, we enjoy the true pleasures of this life better than those who have no other hope. We have a final hope that's based on the promise of a God who does not lie ever. This we trust, this God we know we can trust. A God who never lies, promising it before the ages began. So as a community of faith, here again is where we are distinct from our world. We're driven by a settled confidence that we will live forever in Christ's presence. We live as Christ's body with a shared confidence that our best days are ahead of us because God has said so. We trust His word for salvation. We trust His word for eternal life. Now this prospect, this hope of what will come does not eliminate the pain we suffer at the death of a loved one. It does not erase our diseases. It does not heal the suffering or tragedies or the deep disappointments in life it doesn't pass over those or pretend that they're not there but think of it christian such hope does pull all put all of our loss and suffering in perspective it helps us see it all my best days are ahead of me always I know on the authority of God's promise, this will end well. Those of you now suffering the loss of a loved one, a disappointment that goes so deep, you don't know if you want to live. Those of you struggling with pain and disease and you're looking at the reality and saying, this is going to go downhill, not get better until I die. Know on the authority of God's promise, this will end well. It changes everything. We have this foundation of trust and faith, and you say, is is it possible? Is it real? This is what God, by His Spirit, accomplishes in the lives of His true people. Our feet are solidly planted on our faith in Him, our knowledge of His truth that's transforming us, and our hope of eternal life. He puts this hope in our hearts. And it has been now revealed since Christ's death and resurrection, verse 3, at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. He's not making things up. He's not peddling his own theology. God has given him this truth. He's entrusting him with this truth and he's proclaiming it and preaching it and God by his spirit is saving people. He's rescuing them from their sin, delivering them from the bondage of sin, and helping them to grow in faithfulness. This He's doing. Now on this side of the cross, in the preaching with which the apostles were entrusted, that message revealed in Christ is that He died. And that His death was not simply because He had a bad day, a run-in with the Jews and the Romans. He died as the sacrificial Lamb of God to pay the penalty of sin for his people. And he rose from the dead, securing eternal life for those who trust him. So in a sense, Paul says, this is why I labor. This is what I'm living for, is to say there's a risen Christ in heaven who is saving people, delivering for them from the bondage of sin, and has promised to us eternal life in his presence deliverance from sin, deliverance from death, forever in his presence, purified by the righteousness of Christ as a free gift. This is the message. Titus, I write to you. My true child, in a common faith, I pass on to you grace and peace from God the Father, In Christ Jesus our Savior. Oh, Titus, we've got work to do. You've got work to do on this island. But let me pause here to greet you, to pass on God's blessing. You are my true child. We don't know that Paul led Titus to Christ. It's a possibility, but we cannot prove that. He may just be speaking to him as a fatherly figure, seeking to encourage and disciple this young man. But notice here his emphasis of the common faith. There's the foundation. This is our heritage. These are our Christian roots. There is this common faith. I'm not here in an evolutionary mindset as seeing myself as the most enlightened that's passed up all the generations before No, we see our identity rooted in Christ crucified and risen. And from that place, Jesus worked to keep adding people to his church. That's my identity. That's my people. I'm not re-figuring everything out in my generation, but I'm seeing that heritage and it points me with hope to the future as I look to the Lord. So unlike the secular humanists or those who dabble in the fantasies of a fallen world, we are participants in an ancient fraternity of believers. And the evidence that Christ is at work in this church is people living by faith, people eating up the knowledge of God's truth, people being transformed by that truth, and people who have a sense of eternity and a trust in God's promise that says in the midst of all kinds of suffering, just like we suffer like everybody else in this world, but we look at it and say, this will end well. I have total confidence. So just thinking from the angle of history as we bind some of these thoughts up, Stable societies and institutions feed on historical roots and inherited principles. Historical amnesia leads only to narcissistic arrogance that accomplishes little more than to incite societal upheaval and impose harebrained ideas on others. We don't like the ideas that are here. We turn them upside down, we come up with our own, and they'll prove just as bankrupt. Blessed are those people whose contemplation of historical roots served to stabilize their souls, never looking back and finding any perfection, but recognizing that we all are a product of our heritage. And we can just leave it at that and just speak of it in a societal general way. But I use that more as a launching pad to just point to the direction of this passage. Blessed above all others are churches of the redeemed whose history is rooted in the deeds of a God who never fails and always rescues his people. As we look back, we're not looking for historical figures who walked in perfection. We're looking back and seeing historical figures, both biblical and secular, who lived as sinners. But over all of that, is a god who never sins who never lies and who is rescuing people for his name that's that ancient apostolic faith that common faith that we share the risen christ saving his people transforming them there's some churches christian in name you would get the conclusion that Jesus lives today to entertain his people. Jesus lives today to guide them in self-help. Jesus lives today so that they get along a little bit better than their neighbors. The message of the church, the orientation of such churches, would indicate that. That's not what Jesus is doing What he is doing is he is creating a people who live by faith, who love his truth, who are being changed by that truth, and who have a hope in eternal life. Is that true of you? Is that true of this church? That's the objective faith, the evidence that Eden Baptist Church is alive. That we're not some social club that's just looking to entertain or looking to help people with self-help. But that we are really part of the work of the risen Christ. It's these evidences in our lives. Which is why we ask about these evidences as people join with us in this church. Which is why we hold one another accountable to these evidences so that we are speaking about the true faith and not just playing church. Are these objectives of the gospel true in increasing ways in your life? Are you trusting God? Are you pursuing truth? Are you understanding that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone? Are you growing in godliness? Are your eyes fixed on the bedrock hope of eternity? Is there in your life that sense that no matter how he or she is shaken by the circumstances of a fallen world, it is very clear that there is a stability with respect to the future? That this will end well, and that ability, that that stability, is fed by an intake of God's word. The world we live in has none of this. No faith. No truth. No hope. No heritage. If you say, yeah, that's me. The good news is that this work of Christ to draw you into his family, to adopt you as his own, he just looks you in the eye and says, trust me put your faith and your confidence in me as your savior there is no other hope and that will give you a standing and a stability in this world like you've never known and it will change your affections for those who know christ as savior of course we continue to fail we don't live the godly lives that we should god never lies we do We do on a lot of levels, but there is a call now to repentance, to even think, are my feet on the right ground? Am I tracking the right way? And to seek the Lord in repentance and confession of sin, to grow together as a church, in part, as we study this book together over these weeks as God gives us life. May he draw us to himself this way. Let's pray. We're thankful, Lord, for this beautiful introduction to this book it means so much to us in our faith. And I pray that we would labor through it and understand it better and grow by your spirit to uh, walk with Christ. For those who know not Jesus as Savior, may we be a light to them. May you draw them to saving faith in Jesus even today. And Lord, I pray that in every way that this church would live out its life as a testament to the light that Christ has brought into our lives the new life in Him. We thank You for that life. We rejoice in it and pray that You would hear now the cry of our heart in prayers and in songs of praise as we rejoice in the salvation that is free and rich and gives us a solid foundation under our feet for all eternity. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.